All right. Now that this is stressful morning has... <laughs> yes, and there's a very large squirrel or bird or something that's taken up residence in the tree just outside the window here, so... Be a nice backdrop of squawking happening. Welcome to the newest episode of Rabbit Holes Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Elise. And I'm your other host, Andy. And this is our great big Canadian special. It's Canada Day tomorrow. Yay! Woo! Woo! <laughs> so happy Canada Day, you hoser. Happy Canada Day to you, too, eh? Thanks. They're up and <laughs> go sleep in your igloo. I don't know. What else are we known for? Um, saying sorry a lot. Hold on. Okay, I'm trying to minimize the amount of chirping and buzzing and beeping and clinging that you'll hear. Um, it is a busy time for us, so listeners will notice that we are recording from two separate locations on a new online recording platform. So hopefully this works out and sound quality is decent. Uh, but the upside is, is uh, Wellington is hiding from Andy, so I have company in the podcast studio today yes and i'm in my basement with my craptacular internet <laughs> yes andy basically lives in a third world country at this point because she can't get access to reliable internet i know actually i think some third world countries have better access to internet than i do i was gonna say that's probably actually really insulting to some third world countries <laughs> we would have hotspotted on my phone but i'm out of data and i only have one bar at my house yeah God, I can't wait to get and, the new house yeah, built. Yeah, I don't blame you. But hot spotting for a recording session, I'm assuming, would cost you uh, your firstborn. So I'll try to avoid that. Like we said, this show comes out on Sunday, June 30th. And that's going to be a big day here in Canada because it's lead up to Canada Day. And we have our three-day long weekend this year. I think last year, Canada Day fell in the middle of the week. So yeah. Big, exciting, fun weekend for us here in Canada, and we figured we would do a Canadian-themed episode for everyone. Um, a lot of our listeners are from Canada, but we have some international listeners, too, so we wanted you to get to know Canada a bit more. Yes, and the things that make us uniquely us, I guess, are the things that we associate <laughs> with ourselves. Yes, exactly. So we've both gone our separate ways and prepared Canadian-themed stories for you, and because I went last week, I went first last week, that means you get to go first this week. All right. So if you grew up or lived in Canada in the 90s and early 2000s, you definitely are going to know what I'm talking about today. If you are <laughs> with people and you think someone is claiming to be Canadian but lying, then this is going to give you a few <laughs> tricks to see if they are truly an imposter. At least... Um, Elise, sorry, I was uh, dictating this to notes one day, and it was and every time I said Elise, it said at least. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, so you know what I'm referring to when I just say I smell burnt toast and peach baskets. Yeah, of course. For all of those who you who don't know what I'm talking about, these are from our favorite Canadian Heritage Minutes or 
Historica Minutes, or as I always thought they were called, histor- Heritage Moments. So whichever one of those three that you Wait. thought they were called, you know what I'm talking about. So these were a collection of very short films that focused on an aspect of Canadian history. They were presented as 60-second commercials and shown prominently on Canadian TV. They're also shown in cineplexes, in uh, Cineplex Odeon theaters before movies would start. So they'd be part of the trailer runs or part of the stuff that played while you were sitting there. Uh, they are still being made today, and we will talk about some of the newer ones, but I think it's safe to say that their heyday was definitely in the 90s. Oh, yeah, for sure. But hold on, I need to go back. Heritage Moments isn't the official name of this thing? No, they're actually called, they were originally called Historica Minutes. Now they're called Heritage is, Minutes. Oh, uh, maybe, I don't know, like, everyone, I'm pretty sure we all remember them as being Heritage Moments. So did I, but I actually looked up the Historica Canada website who is who made them, and they were originally always called Historica Minutes, and then they changed them to Heritage yeah. Minutes, when I think they realized that everybody called them Heritage Moments. <laughs> True, but this feels like a collective Mandela effect happening for these. <laughs> I know, right? So they tended to focus on important but slightly obscure parts of Canadian history, with some exceptions. They also focused on some specific people. These commercials and short films were so influential that they became part of Canadian culture and part of our zeitgeist, which you think is kind of meta because these segments focused on specific parts of Canadian culture and then the commercials themselves have become part of our culture and formed part of our, you know, lexicon. I can't wait for the heritage moment on the heritage minutes. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> so, like I mentioned, I smell burnt toast is something most Canadian kids have probably said when referencing a specific commercial or when you have a massive brain fart and say you're having a stroke. Although I'm still was- terrified every time I smell burnt toast. Oh, that you're having some sort of seizure. They even have yeah. spoofs. There's a lot of spoofs out there. I think you're probably thinking of the House Hippo, which I don't think is a Canadian Heritage Minute. It's actually a Hinterlands Who's Who spoof. Uh, no, it was um, Truth in Advertising. Oh, yeah. There was that campaign around the same time. It was a Truth in Advertising campaign. So there were some spoofs that uh, one of the federal parties ran attacking <laughs> the other party that they were made to mimic these Heritage Minute commercials, which I say is in bad taste. Yes. So, you know, we have spoofs of Heritage Moments, we have spoofs of Hinterland Who's Who's, which maybe I'll do um, another special on, which were a segment on Canadian wildlife. My, my husband, as soon as I said I was doing uh, Heritage Minutes, he was like, oh, the spoofs, like the Gatineau Cougar. And I'm like, no, that's actually a Hinterlands Who's Who spoof. <laughs> He's like, oh. We have a rich, deep history of spoofing. Rich, deep media history, apparently. I know. Again, meta, right? Like, So the yeah. first um, generation of these Heritage Minutes were the brainchild of philanthropist Charles Brofman. I don't know if this is the same Brofmans as the Seagrams. Who knows? I should have probably looked. Is there an N in there? 
Bronfman, the Seagram's family is Bronfman with an N. Bronfman, yeah, B-R-O-N-F-M-A-N. Ah, might be. Yeah. So he started the Bronfman's CRB Foundation, which was one of the founding groups that preceded the creation of Historica Canada. They commissioned a national survey, which less than half the respondents could name the country's first prime minister. What? And nearly one quarter could not name a Canadian event or achievement of which they were proud. Good Lord, the 1980s were a wasteland, weren't they? What were we, Americans? Jesus, like, come on. Yeah, this was this survey was done in 1986. So I would have been six years old. We had healthcare by then. Discouraged by Canadians' lack of knowledge about their own history, they set out to create a series of historically focused public service announcements. Very stylized. So, and they decided to do them in advertisements. So they were similar length to commercials, yet structured as a dramatic narrative and shot really well. Like, let's face it, they were actually pretty well produced. Yeah, for sure. The fact that they were public service announcements, they were done by a non-for-profit organization. Now, they, so they, the early stages of the project, they established the following criterias for the minutes. So one, they have to intrigue us with Canadian heritage, be producible within resources, be truthful within the bounds of dramatic license, reflect and celebrate Canadian social and cultural values, tolerance, fairness, courage, tenacity, resourcefulness, and inventiveness. <laughs> Origins and surprise, provoke, reflection, re-examination, and raise questions. So all of the minutes were supposed to be to reflect these six things in some way in 60 seconds. <laughs> Very ambitious. But I mean, you, you think about the ones like, so some of the more popular ones, like we talk about with the first brain surgery that happened for epilepsy, the Burt Toast one that we talk about, like she was awake. That was, that was really, yeah. the commercial was really intriguing. Like we all remember that. It was a pretty big deal for, um, medicine in the world because that was one of the first times that was done so it really did hit on all those things right yeah but to be fair to be fair i think we i mean speaking for myself i remember it not because of like this was a canadian who did this first like surgery i remember it because every time i smelled burnt toast i was terrified (laughs) follow neuroses (laughs) i've got issues we talked about it in the last episode. Yes. <laughs> and which now, seeing that book, I understand why you're a ball of neuroses. Thank you. <laughs> so, in 1988, they developed three pilot episodes, Valor Road, Underground Railroad, and Jacques Plante. Focus groups were organized in Toronto and Montreal, involving English and French-speaking participants, to gauge the reaction to the minutes as well as the level of interest in Canadian history and pride in being Canadian. So they rolled out the first 13 minutes. They were televised on in English on CBC and French on Radio Canada in 1991. They were featured as part of a quiz show that aimed to educate Canadians on their history with entertaining dramatic short films. And the English broadcast was hosted by Wayne Ronstan. Oh, <laughs> 
And then uh, they were released, so they released a bunch, uh, five more rounds between 1991 and 2000. So they were Rural Teacher, Peacemaker, The Avro Arrow. Starring Dan Aykroyd, that I remember. Exactly. So then they did, in 1999, they renamed the films Historica Minutes, Historica Minutes, History by the Minute. Oh, that was a long name. (laughs) Let's try that again. So first they were called Heritage Minutes. Then in 1999, they renamed them Historica Minutes, History by the Minute. In 2005, the Historica Foundation partnered with Patrick Watson to produce eight military-themed Heritage Minutes. Vimy Ridge, Osborne of Hong Kong, Mona Parsons, Tommy Price, Juno Beach, Andrew Mulski. Home from the Wars, and something in the Congo. I'm not even going to try to pronounce it. And those were the <laughs> military minutes. And they had a specific name, which I will have to try to find, but I did not write it down. So in 2009, they actually produced some more, and they uh, called them, went back to calling them Heritage Minutes. But these were kind of new. So what happened is the Heritage Minutes have received funding from varieties of sources over the years, from Canadian Post to the Power Corporation of Canada, to the Government of Canada, but they always produced independently without engagements from funders and scripts, direction or production. So they just got money, but no one could tell them what they were going to produce. Sounds like a good idea. Yeah. During their first decade, they were regularly broadcast, I said, on major TV networks. Due to the cultural and educational content of the minutes, the networks never received payments for airing them, but they would go towards their Canadian content requirements or their CanCon. That's what I was wondering and thinking that seemed to be like the the deal and why they were so well done if you're going to count that towards your Canadian content. So again, it was 60 seconds. They actually got to count 150% of that time as a credit towards. So they, they ran it for 60 seconds. They got to claim 90 seconds of time for the Canadian Can requirements Uh, do you explain that anywhere in your story no so for the listeners who aren't familiar because we are canadians just north of the biggest entertainment market producer in the world outside of bollywood there was a real sense back in the 60s 70s and 80s that we were going to lose our national identity so they passed a bunch of laws saying that the certain amount of content on our television had to be canadian produced I mean, you could produce a, a television show about New York set in Canada, uh, due south, looking at you, but that still counted as Canadian content. Yeah, for CanCon laws, there's four. So it's like written, um, produced, directed, and the artist. So it, for music, anyway, you had to have two of the four. The For all of that, the Canadian industry is almost undistinguishable from the American industry, which was the purpose of why they created it. (laughs) Uh, So for a number of years, beginning in 1992, the Heritage Minutes were also screened before feature films, like I said, across the country. And during the late 90s, Universal Home Video Canada included the Minutes in several of their home video releases. Yes, that I remember. See it on your VHSs and DVDs before you watched your movie. They also um, created additional theme, thematic collections, like I said, with the military minutes, screen legends, radio minutes, 
and as well as a comic book series called True North Comics. Hmm. They also did a bunch of written history work in newspaper columns, um, and they produced a couple of books called Just a Minute, Just Another Minute, and A Minute More, where they compiled a lot of the writing and a lot of the work they've done. And since 2013, the Heritage Minutes have been available for viewing on all Via Rail trains within the Quebec City-Windsor corridor. So if you're on a Via, you can watch all of these Heritage Minutes for free. Awesome. You can also buy them on DVD as like a collection box set, I think. Oh, yeah? I think my friend Claudia in university was like a massive fan of them. And she was very happy the day that she found the DVD set with all of them on it. That's hilarious. They obviously, as I said, they worked their way into Canadian popular culture to the point where they've been parodied. This Hour is 22 Minutes, Royal Canadian Air Force, The Rick Mercer Report. The Comedy Network aired short parodies entitled Sacrilege Moments. (laughs) And there's been uh, a lot of other spoofs. So this week in social media on Facebook, I'll be posting some links to some of the originals and some of the spoofs. They've also um, garnered a lot of awards, and a lot of really famous people have been in them. Um, So the Heritage Minutes about the Halifax explosion, which most people will remember because that's a pretty high up there one, uh, garnished a 1992 Gemini Award for photography. Because that's a very stylized one, right? Like anything that's very impactful. Yeah, very dark, very, looks like there was a blue wash on it almost, if I'm remembering right. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, they sort of fall, if I remember correctly, they fall very much into either these very vivid colors or very these sort of sepia vintage, depending on what they were looking at. Yeah. So, as you said, they have included people like um, Dan Aykroyd, Roy Dupree, um, Alan Hocko, Jared Kelso... Um, Molly Parker, George Stromblomagus, Lloyd Robinson, <laughs> Peter Grosky, like narrators and performers. Of that list, I only recognize two names, Dan Aykroyd and George Snuffleupagus, and I can't even remember which one George Snuffleupagus was in. And yes, he I know that's not his name, but I can't pronounce it. He narrated one of the newer ones. Got it. So in 2012, they um, commissioned a poll, so Historica Canada commissioned a poll by Ipso Reid, of 3,900 Canadians to determine the most popular minutes. And the top five were Jackie Robinson, tied with Halifax Explosion, Jenny Trout, and she was the sort of um, first female doctor. Okay. If you remember, she got up, they were, they had covered in her anatomy class, her and another female medical student, they had covered sort of the area of the penis and the groin with a sticky note because women shouldn't, you know, are too delicate to see that. And there was her male student counterparts were snickering and she got up, stormed up, grabbed it, crumpled it up and threw it at the professor and said something and stormed out. Yep. I remember seeing the Jenny Trout one, although I had to look up what it was called. Yeah. (laughs) Because I remember as a kid thinking like she was just so strong and and forceful and she was a woman that I would like to be someday. Exactly. 
Uh, number four on the list is probably the most spoofed. It's the Winnie one about Winnie the Pooh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and that's probably like the most spoofed one. Because uh, for those people who are like, what does Winnie the Pooh have to do with Canada? Well, Winnie, the actual bear to which Winnie the Pooh was created off of, or the concept for Winnie the Pooh came from, was actually Canadian. It's a, yes, it's a slight thread, but they used it anyway. <laughs> you know, as well as they have been very popular, they've also had some criticism um, about how they've portrayed uh, various indigenous, like like the Métis activist Louis Riel. Riel. Yeah. Yeah. Which star- starts with him with the first person voiceover narrative and ends up with his hanging. That was criticized yeah, but- for being too violent to show to young people. But that's what happened. And then some criticisms dislike the minutes that focus on the Canadian military heroes and achievements, arguing that more attention should be paid to peaceful achievements, which they did do some peacekeeping ones as well. Peacekeeping is like a major part of our national identity now, but it is a very short relative part of our identity. Like we weren't peacekeepers back during the Vimy Ridge era and the um, the first and second world war. Like that wasn't our reputation. So it makes sense that they kind of overloaded to those side of things and not the peacekeepers. And if you do your job right as a peacekeeper, there's not a lot to report on well, that's in terms of Canadianness. And if you do your peacekeeping missions incorrectly, then we end up with shake hands with the devil. In Somalia, yeah. So let's, I mean, for all of our reputation as national peacekeepers, international peacekeepers, the true successes that happen there are the ones you never hear about because you go in, you stabilize a region, you get out after it's returned to its natural state of power and beingness. Like Exactly. The whole point. Yeah. Exactly. So, probably their biggest controversial one was a minute about Canadian peacekeepers in Cyprus produced in 1991. But it was criticized by Turkey's ambassador to Canada as the grounds that it depicted Turkish citizens in poor light. The producer responded that the minute simply explored Canada's role in peacekeeping and that no slight with Turkey was intended. But they did soon pull the peace because of historically inaccurate costume details. That's what they claim. (laughs) Okay, sure. (laughs) Uh, the Turkish ambassador to Ottawa complained that the Minutes treated his country unfairly. Although they did say that that's not why they pulled it, that it was costume details that were historically inaccurate. Also, these people have a minute to portray a very complex situation. Like, unless you want your viewers to do, like, background reading before they see that minute, like, what do you expect? (laughs) Well, exactly. Like, it's 60 seconds of, you know these little snapshots of of a huge piece in time. Yeah. It's a little hard to get them exactly right. So we had, as we talked about, our first generation. So those were our the ones that we probably recognize the most. Um, yeah. The Jenny Trouts, the Halifax explosion. And then in 2012, they began this, creating the new generation of Heritage Minutes, which focused on the War of 1812, um, yep. Richard Pierpoint, which uh, tells the story of important black loyalists. Queenston Heights, which um, reenacts the efforts of the Grand River Warriors at the Battle of Queenston Heights. And these two heritage minutes were funded by the 
Government of Canada's War of 1812 Commemorative Fund, and they can be viewed alongside some classic Canadian Heritage Minutes. They also, in 2013, got a bit more funding and produced two more, um, and these were sort of the fathers of Confederation, and they looked at Sir John A. Macdonald and Sir George Etienne Cartier, and mm-hmm. in commemoration of the bicentennial of their birth. And then they have actually produced two new minutes a year until 2017. So they did one on the Winnipeg Falcons, which tells the story of the team of Icelandic Canadians who served in the First World War before winning the first gold medal in Olympic ice hockey. They produced Nursing Sisters in 2015. Yeah, that was an awesome one. I love that. Yeah, depicted an air raid at the number three Canadian stationary hospital in France in, in 1918. The Heritage Minute about Terry Fox was released in 2015. It took to 2015 to do one on Terry Fox. I know. I just had that thought, like, how did we go that long? And how was Terry Fox not like number one or two on their to-do list? And But they did this one in 2015, and it commemorated the 35th anniversary of the Marathon of Hope. In 2016, for Black History Month, they released a new Heritage Minutes Minute on Viola Desmond, a pioneering Black activist who is now on our money. Woohoo! Yay! Representation! She refused to leave her seat in the whites-only section of the Roseland Theatre in New Glasgow, Nova Scotia, and she was arrested for actions but finally pardoned by the Lieutenant Governor and the Governor of Nova Scotia in 2010. As I said... She is now the first Canadian woman depicted on the face of a Canadian banknote. Yes. And the first person of color, too, if I'm not remembering things wrong. No, I think I think you're right. She's the first woman and first person of color to be depicted on the face of a Canadian banknote. Canadian woman, I should say, because the Queen is on all yeah. of this, So, And yeah, she's technically the Queen of Canada as well, like independent from her Queenship of Britain, but I was going to let it slide, but then you brought it up, so I felt I had to be the historian in the room. The Queen of England is on all our money. Uh, if you get coins throughout the years, you can watch her face age. You can. But I would like to point out that it's not the Queen of England on our money, it's the Queen of Canada. Sorry. Queen of Canada? <laughs> Uh, They released two new Heritage Minutes in 2016 for National Aboriginal Day. And they depict uh, the treaty-making process in Ontario, specifically highlighting Treaty 9. And the other is the story of Shane Winjack, the 12-year-old boy uh, from Ontario who had died attempting to run away from a residential school. Oh, yeah. I remember that. If you want more information on that story, um, the late uh, Gord Downey did a lot of work and did a whole visual uh, art piece on the on the story. It's really moving. Um, and that was released, I think, a year or so before he died. But he's done a whole piece on the story and looking at residential schools. It's it's if you want a good, like heartbreaking soul-sucking, like, you know, really hard look at how we got here. Uh, it's a yeah. good it's a good one to watch, but it's a really important story, um, I think, to tell, because it just, it's one person, but it reflects a lot of the horrors that that happened thanks yeah. to the residential school system. 
And then in 2016, they released a new Heritage Minute on fame Inuit artist. I am not saying the names out of disrespect. I'm saying the name. I'm just not saying the names because I'm just going to butcher them, which I think is probably more disrespectful because there's Kinujak, and she uh, founded. I was a founding member of the West Baffin Eskimo Cooperative Studios and an organization that continues to promote internationally acclaimed Inuit art. And then in 2017, on International Women's Day, they released new heritage minutes on the famed women's basketball team, the Edmonton Grads, once described by James Naismith as the finest team to have ever stepped onto the floor. The Grads still hold the best winning record across all sports of 502 to 20. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, any professional sports team or franchise would love to have that record. Pioneers in women's athletics, the grads helped to popularize women's participation in sports across the country and represented Canada at international competitions in Europe before women were allowed to participate in the Olympics. Hmm. And then I definitely remember seeing this. This was really recent from 2017. They released the Boat People Refugee Heritage Minute that follows a family's escape from Vietnam and their journey uh, to a Malaysian refugee camp and finally to their new home in Montreal. Hmm. And then the first animated Heritage Minute was released in 2017 as well, and it explores the rich immigrant history of Toronto's Kensington Market using animation to produce a, to transform a single shop into five different cultural enclaves. Hmm. The Minute received an award at the Ottawa International Animation Festival, and was nominated for a Heritage Toronto Award. So you said the first animated minute, and I was like, what about the log uh, waltz? And then I was like, no, Elise, that's not actually a Heritage Minute, and you need to uh, stop being so dumb. <laughs> no, but that's fair. Like, that's I think a lot of things are sort of mixed in with this stuff, because, I mean, A, we were kids. So, yeah. And memory, memory doesn't, there's you know there's truth and then there's what you remember yeah and i think sometimes you mix them in like i honestly thought the um house hippo was a hinterlands who's who spoof but like you said it was a truth in advertising (laughs) and now that you've said it i'm like yes you're right of course yeah (laughs) but i think i'll probably pin that to our page too because we keep talking about it and everybody should see it because it is delightful it is. I still look for them uh, every time I take out my peanut butter for peanut butter toast and uh, disappointed that I never find them. I know. Uh, so <laughs> they also produced one on Lucy Maud Montgomery that was released in 2018. And the first um, LGBTQ2 minute was uh, produced in 2018 as well on gay rights activist Jim Egan. Yeah. I don't remember the whole story behind that one, but I remember feeling very moved and like, holy crap, they did such a good job with this. Yeah, so he was a um, challenged homophobia and started speaking out for the rights of the LGBTQ2 community starting in the late 40s. And in the late 80s, Mm -hmm. he challenged the government of Canada to receive spousal benefits for his life partner. Uh, And their case ensured that sexual orientation would be protected under the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, which was a pretty landmark victory for 
the LGBT2 community. So to finish off my little story, I mean, these are huge ones in our culture, and I'll, I'll click to some of them. There's not too many that, that I think uh, we don't know. Um, but some of them tie into older topics, so I'm going to shout out some and see if you remember them. Do you remember the one about traditionally making maple syrup? <laughs> or the maple syrup industry? Maybe? I'd have to see it, but I vaguely, but I can't remember if I'm confusing it with, like, actual trips to maple syrup places oh. as a kid. Like, you said memory is a weird thing. John Cabot? Uh, was he the one with the Canada, Canada? No, we got the, the one name. who discovered Newfoundland. And the new Newfoundland, world. yes. Yeah. Where it, yeah. like, morphs into, like, pictures of, like, actual Newfoundland now, like, modern times. It's the one where they, they put the basket over the side and it just comes up full of fish. Yes. The boat yes. is just, like, it looks like they're almost, like, being stuck because there's so many cod. Yep. Yeah, that was controversial when it came out at the time because the cod industry out there was suffering yeah. and they were closing down yep. the ability to fish. I remember that. Yeah, it was just at the start of the cod moratorium. So yeah, it was a bit yeah. of a knife in the old heart. Yeah, the timing wasn't great. <laughs> uh, Emily Carr, famed painter. Yep. Uh, the midwife one, I remember. Yes, where the little girl bursts into the cabin demanding the midwife come with her out in the snow yes yep sort of looked at the tough time you had like back in the day to have a baby yeah maurice rocket richard which was less about his hockey and more about moving yeah <laughs> the, the terrible rental situation in montreal that hasn't changed very much since then yeah i remember that like moving day is a thing like it's almost a national holiday like it's almost a provincial holiday yeah, because like three quarters of the leases are up on July 1. <laughs> Basketball, which is where we get our peach baskets. Yep. Winnie, as I said, which is probably the most like, spoofed one. <laughs> I'm surprised uh, the uh, Pier 21 didn't get mentioned. I was just going to say orphans. It's there called it is. orphans. Okay. Which is the Pier oh. 21. <laughs> the kids yeah. coming over. It's like your name is now insert random white did up name here <laughs> well it was like wasn't it like english kids getting or irish kids getting adopted irish. by like french families yeah but i mean they were if they had an irish sounding last name they usually changed them when they landed just to make them um acclimatize and fit in better <laughs> your name is now patrick <laughs> richard like patrick johnson yeah <laughs> Uh, of course, let's not forget the Expo 67. Uh-huh. Superman. Who could forget the yes. Superman? Don't they, like, call out the absurdity in that of, like, having his, like, underoos on the outside of his tights? Yes, they do. Yeah, okay. <laughs> uh, I will definitely pin that one for anybody who is not Canadian and doesn't realize that Superman is actually a Canadian, created by a Canadian. Yep. And it's quite this funny little, um, goes like, no one's going to... Believe a strong man in tights. Yeah. Tell that to Marvel. <laughs> Depends on how good looking the man in tights is, let's say. Because <laughs> I would watch Aquaman in tights if it's Jason. <laughs> Come on. Who wouldn't? Was I having a bad day last week? and I, Or you were having a bad day? Or we were both having a bad day? So I just sent you a bunch of gifts of him wet. 
Yes, I remember that. Very NSFW. (laughs) But they're what comes up if you put in the gift bar Aquaman. (laughs) (laughs) And then the last one, I'll... uh... The Blue Nose, which I didn't realize was a newer one, because I actually remember it. Yeah, but you out on the East Coast, what did you remember versus what did you learn and conflated with remembering? Actually, that one was produced in uh, 2006, so. And the one I remember, like I said, is the, uh, I can't remember which of the discoverers, quote unquote, would have been arriving and meeting the Canadian Indigenous group and asking what the name of the land was and interpreting the word village for Canada, and that's how we got stuck with the name Canada. <laughs> I think it was Jacques Cartier, wasn't it? Yeah. Sounds about right. Yes, because the Saint Gulf of St. Lawrence and the River Valley. But yeah, that's my look at the Heritage Minutes, Heritage Moment, Historica Minutes, whatever you like to call them, that really, I think, shaped <laughs> our understanding of the history of our country because i think i don't really remember too much about canadian history from school but probably most of my history takeaways are from these commercials which is really sad to say which i mean is why they were created but uh, as the historian it makes me very nervous that canada's grasp of history is boiled down to a 60 minute or 60 second clip like Sure, there was a bunch of uh, children came over from Ireland and got redistributed throughout the community, but like you have to understand the the backstory of why they came and what the long term repercussions were and what demographic shifts happened before and at like so there's this whole like yes, it's great to have these snapshots and it's great that people learn names like uh, Laura Secord and uh, Viola Jasmine and Cartier like awesome, but like at the same time. I certainly hope people watch them and go, oh, I would like to know more about that and go looking for it. <laughs> Please don't rely on just these 60-second clips of Canadiana as the be-all, end-all of our history. So should I tell you my story now? Yes, please. All right. So my story today is based all around a new inflection of the term O Canada. So in this situation, you'll be saying, oh, Canada, a lot. <laughs> now, I love my home and native land, but we're about, uh, just a little bit weird, I think we can all admit. And really, can you blame us? We're huge. Uh, we're very diverse. Our winters can last six to nine months out of the year, which will just do things to a person. So we overcompensate sometimes, and we get a little kooky around the edges. And so that's what I would like to celebrate with our story today in celebration of Canada Day. So do you know what Canada's official motto is? No. It is Latin, and it's on our crest, and it says, Amari Uliski Admara, which means from sea to sea. And we take advantage of that, having two seas, by having two very unique races on both of them uh, throughout the year. So if you find yourself in Nanaimo in July, be sure to set aside some time to attend the World Championship Bathtub Race. Each vessel has to, and I use the term vessel loosely here, uh, that enters the 58-kilometer race has to include a component with the general shape slash design of an old-fashioned roll-edged tub. So those big old claw footers with the rolled sides down on them. Your boat has to look like that. Yeah. Uh, The event is organized by the Loyal Nanaimo Bathtub Racing Society, 
and either they took license with their name or they actually have some sort of royal charter because usually when you call yourself a loyal society it means that you have royal assent to call yourself that so either they got it or they are just taking advantage of a commonly set up name and understanding uh, the first race was run in 1967 to celebrate Canada's 100th birthday, and at that time there were 200 participants, um, and the race still runs every year and is extremely popular. It's part of a four-day larger festival that happens out, on, out in Nanaimo um, about boating and water uh, craft. And it sounds kookier than it is, at least the modern version, because all the pictures that I saw were people sitting in old-fashioned bathtubs that were then mounted into high-speed racing vehicles. So it's it looks really weird, <laughs> but um, they're on these like really small-looking boat bottoms with huge outbound motors, uh, but they're sitting in a bathtub. <laughs> I can't wait to see pictures of this. It's pretty glorious. So that's on the west coast. On the other side of the country, though, in Windsor, Nova Scotia, in the fall, visitors get to take uh, the It's a Great Pumpkin Charlie Brown to the very extreme and make all the jokes that they would like because that city is home to the Pumpkin Parade and Regatta every year. That's right. All year, local green thumbs work very hard to grow the biggest pumpkins possible and then enter them to be judged for size, weight, and aesthetics. After the judging and parade is over a week later, the very bravest of these green thumbs then hollow out their pumpkins and use it as a PVC or personal vegetable craft to compete in a hand-paddled race to get themselves from point A to point B. Again, the pictures are glorious because it's people like up to their armpits in giant pumpkins on the water with paddles. <laughs> also, can you imagine um, hollowing one of these like two ton pumpkins out? Yeah, I'm pretty sure that's why it happens a week after the judging does. Because <laughs> it take you probably a week and some shovels. Yep. Chainsaw the top off that sucker and get to town. Yep. So this event is so popular on the East Coast that Martha Stewart herself agreed to be the parade's grand marshal and regatta judge one year, but she had just gotten out of prison, so the authorities refused her entry into the country because she was a convicted criminal. <laughs> Which is how I first heard about the regatta race, and it's just a delightful... <laughs> well, she's yeah. a felon, but... Uh... Yeah. Uh, for moral reasons, we can deny felons entry into our country, and uh, they decided Martha Stewart was too hot to touch the moment and declined to let her in. <laughs> so both the bathtub and pumpkin races are part of larger festivals, and Canadians are also hella weird when it comes to those festivals, and we're just gearing up for festival season uh, now that it's finally warm out. So here are some interesting ones coming up that you can attend. So Andy, have you ever heard of a prairie oyster? Yes. <laughs> well, if you would like to experience one for yourself, you should plan on being in Calgary in July because there is a bar out there called Buzzards or Bottle Screw Bill's Pub in Calgary. The name changes depending on when you're reading the story. Um, and they will tell you all about the exciting and various ways that prairie oysters can be prepared and served. And by the way, prairie oysters are bull testicles. 
and uh, the Buzzards crew runs the Testicle Festival, which ran for almost 30 years. <laughs> the Testicle Festival. I love it. Festival, yes. So Buzzards owner Stu Allen said, quote, frankly, the first year was met with considerable suspicion, and it took some time before the city began to embrace the idea. Even my wife was skeptical, but she eventually had a ball. Boo. Yeah. <laughs> On the menu are dishes called mixed nuts, which are prairie oysters sautéed with gently crushed walnuts in a rum butter sauce. You might also want to try the great balls of fire, which are prairie oysters served in a hot and spicy sauce with bison uh, accompanying it. And then we have the battered balls, which is exactly what it sounds like, but which, according to Alan, will bring a lump to your throat and a tear to your eye. Really? It's enough to bring a tear to my eye. <laughs> You deep fry anything, it tastes good. So that's probably the only way you would get me to eat prairie oysters. That's true. And for our American listeners, you might know them as Rocky Mountain oysters. That's what they're called down south. So a little closer to home for you and I is Perth's Kilt Run. And what is a kilt run, you may ask? Well, a lot of people apparently have asked that question because on the town's website is an FAQ and they answer, a kilt run is exactly what it sounds like, a run where all the participants wear kilts. So the first run happened in 2010 and it landed the town of Perth, Ontario in the Guinness World Records. There were 1,089 finishers that year, breaking an old record that had stood with only 250 finishers for the kilt race. So they upped the size considerably. Since then, Perth's world record kilt run has broken its own record three times, the last time being in 2016 when a total of 3,670 people ran and finished the kilt race. Wow. Yeah. Uh, the first run was set up to celebrate Perth, Scotland's 800th anniversary, and uh, Perth, Ontario is named directly for that Perth. So this was a way for them to connect with their um, namesake in the old country. In order to be considered a world record kilt run, because Guinness will certify anything, all registered participants must wear a kilt that meets the following criteria. It must be pleated all around the back, it must have a flat apron at the front, and must be at least knee length and have buckles. So you can't just show up in like a plaid school girl like, skirt. Like you've got to have a real legit honest to God Scottish kilt in order to be counted in the race. There are two categories that you can register yourself in. The first is just the regular run, which is a five kilometer route. Uh, and the second is something called the Warrior Obstacle Challenge. And I read this description and needed a nap. It did not appeal. The Warrior Obstacle Challenge, you're gonna run an eight mile, or sorry, an eight kilometer route. Uh, and during that run, you're required to carry a sword and shields for the entire time. And along the course, you'll have to compete in various challenges from throwing to lifting to aiming. All of this happens in August while you are wearing wool and I'm assuming drinking copious amount of water so you don't die. And I mean, I'm hoping they don't do the traditional um, kilt route and go like commando underneath because the chafing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like that's as soon as you're like, and they run in kilts and I'm like, I can only yeah. imagine the chub rub. Like there are pictures of some people wearing tights underneath, um, and but not everyone. So unless they're wearing bicycle shorts or something, it's a very real possibility. <laughs> uh, the race isn't just for adults. There's even a one-kilometer race for the quote lads and lassies out there. 
So the whole family can be involved. Now, kilts aren't the only Scottish export that will leave you shaking your head at us Canadians. We have also exported the grand tradition of lake monsters. Given that there are two million lakes in Canada and a lot of fishermen, some of whom may or may not have imbibed before they hit the water slash the ice, it shouldn't be too much of a surprise that there have been some pretty big tales about creatures spotted in our waters over the years. Residents of coastal BC have been reporting sightings of a dinosaur-looking creature for more than two centuries now. Caddy, which is short for Cadborosaurus, is named after Cadboro Bay in Vancouver Island, where it allegedly makes its home. It's been described as having the head of a horse or sometimes a camel, small flippers at the front, and either a large pair of flippers at the back or a powerful tail with a flipper on the end. Uh, several indigenous groups in Alaska and Northwest BC have stories about similar creatures and even went so far as to paint it on their boats to, in theory, ward it off while they were out in the water. There have been nine documented carcasses that have washed ashore in the region to date, which people have claimed to be caddy, but it turns out to be a shark or a small whale. Um, but biologists and cryptozoologists, oddly enough, um, figure that we're most likely talking about a pipefish, a giant oarfish, a basking shark, or even a sea lion, rather than this Nessie-style sea monster. Well, yeah. <laughs> you say that it is Nessie's not real, which I think we're going to have to have an argument about sometime. All right. <laughs> so from the adorably named Caddy, we move on to the equally adorably named Mussy. Mussy is named for his or her home of Muskrat Lake, which is about an hour and a half northwest of us here in Ottawa. The problem is that no one can agree on what Mussy actually looks like. Uh, the creature has been described as a walrus or a big sturgeon or even a three-eyed Nessie. Sometimes it has legs and sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes it has a mouthful of sharp teeth and sometimes it has just one single glorious front tooth. So this is a fish tail that is literally constantly changing and no one can quite pin down what it's supposed to look like. Something that's supposed to be a scary monster, though, the local tourism authority is really leaning into the legend and they use images of Mussy on their pamphlets and as a way of drawing in visitors. And it seems to work because I've even heard of like muskrat because of this creature. <laughs> it's so funny how like you could create this whole um industry almost around these yeah. <laughs> things like even from some sorry mythical creature to a giant nickel to yep <laughs> uh, but not last but not least in this lake monster category we have the thetis lake monster again this is a story from the west coast uh, this is less of Nessie-style water dweller and more of like a true monster um, because it's also known as the Canadian Lizard Man. Uh, one description that I read, which may or may not be helpful for some out there, is that he's a mix of a slea stack and the creature from the Black Lagoon. So I hope you're up on your pop culture and know what either of those two things look like. Uh, no, I am definitely not. <laughs> Um, so, like I said, this is a creature from the West Coast, but it has only ever been spotted once, and that was in 1972, when the creature was said to have used his webbed claws to slash at one of the two teenage boys who reported his existence. 
so I think maybe a couple of kids broke curfew and needed a really good excuse as for why they showed up looking like they'd just been in a fight. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or, or something even worse. Or worse, yes. So that was my original uncharitable thought. But then it turns out that just because the modern sources of the fetus lake monster are a little questionable... It can't be dismissed entirely because it does bear a striking resemblance to a Haida story and the Haida or the local uh, indigenous group. Um, so their Haida story is about a lizard-like monster, except in that story, the monster has two tails and wore a hat. <laughs> Which I think it just means he's a debonair gentleman and maybe we shouldn't call him a monster, but that's just my opinion. I was just going to say he's a gentleman monster. Yeah. <laughs> Even did like that tip your hat motion. Yeah, <laughs> the gentleman. <laughs> so I'm going to change course here. Uh, while prepping for this story, I googled a lot of variations of the term weird Canadians just to find out about people that were weird. And there was one weird thing that we do that made every single list that I looked at. And it apparently befuddles the rest of the world. Do you have any guesses of what this could be? Poutine? No. You're close, though. It's related. I don't know. Give it to me. Milk in bags. Oh, yeah. And it's not even across Canada. There's Not every province has milk in bags. Which I didn't realize until I was prepping the story because I grew up in Ontario. And so I just assumed that it was universally Canadian. <laughs> so let's dig into it, though, uh, because I realized as I prepped the story that, A, not everyone in Canada did this, and B, I didn't know a whole lot about it. And so because it just seemed so natural and normal, I never questioned it. But I did learn a lot about the whole situation, and I'm excited to share with you how we ended up with milk and bags. And there's only one reason why that happened, and that reason is the metric system. <laughs> so... When we converted to the metric system back in the 60s, milk production lines would have to have been completely reworked in order to accommodate liter-sized bottles. But there was a system that had been developed by DuPont to inject milk into bags for commercial purposes, and that system only needed slight adjustments to make it work for the smaller liter and a third size bags that we currently have, which is better for personal consumption than giant industrial-sized bags. And really, it does make sense. Even though the entire world is trying to get away from one-use, single-use plastic, it's still less plastic than you will get in a jug of milk. Uh, storing the unopened smaller bags is more convenient, and it encourages quicker consumptions of the bags that are open because it's technically not sealed in the fridge. It's open to the fridge air. So, I mean, I don't think I, we ever went more than two days without finishing up a small bag of milk just because, like, it had to get finished quickly. The genius that is Ontario uh, is apparently spreading worldwide because the UK-based grocery store Sainsbury introduced bag milk to their shoppers around 2010, claiming that bagged milks produce only one quarter of the plastic waste that a regular jug would. So they started giving out free um, pouring jugs, like, the, to put the bag in, and were really encouraging the switch in their customers. So to clarify, for our non-Canadian listeners who have seen this on all of the lists of isn't Canada weird for years now, and you don't quite understand what we're talking about when we say bagged milk, let me explain. So at the grocery store, you buy a big bag of milk, and the big bag has three smaller bags within it. 
You also need a plastic pouring vessel that is purpose-built for the size of the smaller milk bags. And why it's purpose-built is it doesn't have the top. It's an open container. You pop the bag in. You cut off one of the corners of the bag of milk, like you would do with uh, icing piping bags, for example, and you pour away. It doesn't make a mess. The bag doesn't flop around. And yes, it is very effective, and it stores perfectly in the fridge. So as of today, 75% of milk sold in Ontario is actually sold in bags. I, we go through six bags a week. I buy it with two kids, for sure. Yeah. And I know, like, the new food guide does sort of decrease their milk, but uh, we drink it. Like, we eat cereal, we drink milk. Uh, from a kid, my mom was always like, you have to have a glass of milk with your dinner. And even as a Same. almost 40-year-old adult... I generally have a glass of milk with my dinner. I did right up until I was like 17 or 18. And then the fridge we had was uh, crapping out. And so every time I went to go pour milk, it was chunky. Ooh. And you only take so many. Yeah. You only take so many gulps of chunky milk before you can't drink milk anymore. And that's where I am in my life. <laughs> yeah, that's fair enough. Fair enough. But I drank 2% milk. My mom drank skim. And uh, my dad would have a little bit. He had kidney stone issues, so he always avoided calcium. But in our house of just three, we would go through one of those, like, big bags of three smaller bags a week, easily. Usually by Friday, we were out. So I was a big milk, milk drinker as a kid. <laughs> I think most kids are. but uh, And I mean, like, I, yeah. I drink 1% or 2%. We drink 2% with the kids. So we've just switched back to 2%. I, I, can, I can't drink skim milk. That is just way yeah. too watery. I just put it in uh, tea. That's mm. pretty much the only reason I have it around anymore. Yep. So I hope this closes the book on milk in bags, and I never want to hear about it again from international communities. Just know that we're right on this, and you're wrong. <laughs> but the trick with the cutting of the bag is you don't want to cut a hole too big. Yeah. Or too small. Or too small. Too small is a little easier, but too big is disastrous. Do you have the little hook with the blade on it stuck to your fridge? Your uh, magnet? I used to. That's long gone. <laughs> yeah, we had that growing up. But, like, after the first, like, 100 bags you cut open, that blade was so dull, you could never get the job done right. And then, like, you just had, like, a giant floppy bag of milk. Yeah, I know. Like, the opening got too big. <laughs> so I, I just use scissors now. It's a little easier, but... Yeah, we're constantly yep. going through milk. I can't imagine how much, like, recycling we'd have to go through if we were using, like, Tetra Packs. I also yep. find it weird, like, when you go to, an, like, a, a, like, a Max, like, the convenience stores, and you see, like, plastic jug yeah. of milk. I think that's so foreign. Yeah. Yes, that's very American feeling to me. Isn't it? Okay, so it's not just me. Yeah. And I always go, like, but there, it's clear, and, like... From knowing, like, milk shouldn't be exposed to light. That's why the plastic uh, containers that you get for pouring milk are usually solid. Uh, oh. Because you shouldn't expose milk to light too much because then it starts um, decreasing the nutritional value of milk. I remember reading that somewhere. So I was always, like, so confused because those jugs aren't really all that tinted. So it's like you're buying this, like, ginormous jug of milk, which is almost harder to maneuver especially if you're trying to pour that into a bottle like a baby bottle yeah because like some of those drugs are huge they weigh a lot and i'm just like this seems so foreign so i guess that's that to me is what an american would think about bagged milk like how weird is that 
Yeah. <laughs> but I guess also if you're paying three times as much for milk like you do at one of those convenience stores, you're drinking it right away. Like there has to be a really good reason that you need it. <laughs> yeah, you were desperate. Yes. But speaking of things to drink, uh, if you ever find yourself in Dawson City, Yukon, be sure that you stop off at the downtown hotel to enjoy a sour toe cocktail. So what makes the sour toe cocktail so famous, you ask? Well, it's because it's exactly what it sounds like. A shot of whiskey with a legit human toe in it. Blah. Yeah. The origin of this drink goes back to Prohibition and Canada's nasty winter conditions. In the 1920s, the rum-running Lincoln brothers, Louis and Otto, got caught in a blizzard. Louis put his foot through a patch of ice and soaked his foot, and when the brothers got back to their cabin, Louis's right foot was frozen solid. To prevent gangrene, Otto used his axe to chop off Louis's toes. He placed them in a jar of alcohol to commemorate the event. Legend has it that in 1973, Captain Dick Stevensons found the jar and the toe in a remote cabin. And Captain Dick is the one who founded the Sour Toe Cocktail Club, for which there's only one criteria for membership, and it's having a drink of whiskey with that toe in it. And the saying goes, you can drink it fast, you can drink it slow, but your lips must touch that gnarly toe. Oh, hell no. Uh -uh. (laughs) Uh -uh. No. Uh, So you may have heard about this uh, because it made the news back in 2013 because one person who was pledging the club voluntarily drank slash ate the toe. Uh, yeah. And they have a very limited supply of toes, as you can imagine. So I think he ate the third last one that they have. Uh, he was subsequently run out of town because Dawson city takes their sour toe club very seriously. Um, as you can imagine, finding toes is a challenge, but every so often, someone who is charmed by the idea and who has suffered an unfortunate case of frostbite will make a charitable donation to the bar so that the tradition can continue. <laughs> the Yukon yeah. is our Alaska. Also our Florida. <laughs> yes. It's a real, oh, Canada moment when you hear about this so cocktail for the first time. <laughs> oh, pumpkin. But on the subject of whiskey, did you know that we've been engaged in a conflict known as the Whiskey War since 1984? No. We have been. The war is a territorial dispute that has been waged with Denmark for almost 35 years now, and it's all over a rock in the Arctic known as Hans Island. So for context, Hans Island is only about 1.3 square kilometers. It has no inhabitants and no natural resources at all. It is legit a giant rock, and that is it. The photos of it show it as a rock because that's all it is. The problem is that international waters start about 12 miles off the coast of a country, and Hans Island falls within the radius for both Canada and Denmark, specifically Greenland. So it's within that 12-mile border for both of those countries, so theoretically both countries could lay claim to this territory. In 1933, the League of Nations ruled that the island belonged to Denmark, uh, but then the League of Nations disappeared. They, like, shuddered and eventually became the United Nations. But because the League of Nations put out this declaration, everyone pretty much ignored it. (laughs) So what kicked off the conflict, you may ask? Because if in 1933 we were told it belonged to Denmark and it's now 2019 and we're still fighting over it, what happened? 
1984, the Danish Minister for Greenland Affairs visited the island and planted a Danish flag to quote-unquote claim the island on their behalf. He also planned a bottle of brandy with a note attached welcoming visitors to Danish territories. Now, ever since, about once a year, the Canadian Army will head up there and take down the Danish flag and put up a Canadian flag, drink whatever the Danes left behind, and it alternates between brandy and schnapps these days, depending on the year. And they leave a good old bottle of Canadian whiskey in its place and a sign welcoming visitors to Canada. It is the politest war to have ever been waged, and it is peak Canada because it just won't end, and we are too polite for our own good. <laughs> We're also a little petty. <laughs> we are, but delightfully so, I think, that we put Canadian taxpayer dollars into journeys uh, for good old-fashioned booze up. <laughs> it's, well, it's yes, like peak Canada, for like, sure. We are, we're not petty in, like, a bad... Uh, no. We're just this, like, oh, well, uh, here's my booze. Here's your booze. Here's my booze. Yeah. <laughs> oh, Canada. <laughs> but let's close out my story with some information about the weirdest Canadian of all, and this has to be William Lyon Mackenzie King. Now, King was Prime Minister of Canada for a total of 22 years, spread out over three terms, from 1921 to 26. Then he was out of office briefly, but was back in office at his PM from 26 to 30, and then again from 1935 to 1948. Contemporaries described him as, quote, self-righteous, egotistical, petty, vain, moralistic, paranoid, selfish, self-centered, and vindictive, according to one of his biographers. On top of all that, he wasn't a great public speaker, and his persona was very bland. His approach to government was the complete inverse of what you expect from and want from a leader. He once said, quote, it is what we prevent rather than what we do that counts most in government. So Kennedy had asked not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. We had William Lyon Mackenzie King with his, eh, I don't want to. <laughs> Why do we have so much stuff named after him? <laughs> yeah, well... Hold on. So though he studied economics in university, he didn't think the Great Depression was that big of a deal and refused oh, to God. pass legislation to re and refused to pass legislation to relieve its impact on Canadians. Uh, he thought Hitler was a good guy after meeting him in 1937. Oh dear God! Said that Hitler was <laughs> and said that Hitler quote is really one who truly loves his fellow man and believe him that is Hitler when he said that the Germans had no desire or intention to go to war. Oh. So, not exactly the best. Judge of character? Um, a foresight. Yeah, that too. You know what, Chamberlain, the British Prime Minister, had the same impression. So, yeah. Um, what did make him so popular, from what I read, uh, was that he was a very stabilizing force. So, yeah, he was bland and boring and did dumb stuff from now and then, but he was also governing during a really rocky time. And so because he was predictable, people, I guess, thought better the devil you know than the one you don't. <laughs> I think that's sort of how we end up with Kretchen for so long, too. It's like, you know, you yeah. can't name a ton of really great things that Kretchen did. Like, we, we did end up in a really good financial position by the time I was done. But he didn't do anything too stupid, either. Exactly. Like we Except had he did rough up that protest once. 
Yeah, like there's a few things, but like you said, King was also, but it's sort of like we came out having a lot of of money in the bank. He didn't do anything too stupid. He was just sort of there and stable and yeah, people liked him. Minded the shop. Yeah, just minded the shop, basically. So given the less than inspiring description of King that I just gave you, it may surprise you to hear that throughout his time as prime minister, he was known to take political advice from his dogs, his dead relatives, and patterns in his tea leaves. He never married. He never married and reportedly didn't have any close friends. Well, close human friends. He was very close to his dogs. He had three Irish terriers, all of whom were named Pat. He had no need for political polls because his tea leaves could tell him the future. So before the 1934 Ontario provincial elections, he had a cuppa one morning and wrote that in the dregs he saw, quote, there was a very distinctive two birds soaring in opposite directions, a much larger bird coming in an opposite direction and above the other. It seemed to have had to go through some obstacles. To him, that spelled the liberal victory, and that is exactly what happened. So I don't know how he got from point A to point B, but he was right. So there you go. Hmm. When King was dealing with a troubling situation involving a Russian spying ring in Canada in 1945, he weighed the advice given to him by his dead brother, Max, and the late president, Franklin Roosevelt, on what he should do. He also received guidance from Leonardo da Vinci and former Canadian Prime Minister Wilfrid Laurier. Oh, dear As God. might be expected, he... <laughs> As might be expected, he also consulted with his dead dogs via seance over the issue. Uh, King was also very close to his mother, and death didn't break that bond. Uh, For example, one day he was being driven somewhere, and he saw a a house being torn down. And now the glass from the bay window of that house seemed to call to him. So he stopped the car, got out, bought it, and had it delivered to his country estate, and then consulted with his mother about where to place it on the grounds. He bought some old glass? Yes, it called to him from the car he was driving in when he passed it. Oh, pumpkin. He felt compelled to stop. And then his mom told him where to put it. Oh, good lord. So probably no shock here, but he was also a huge believer in coincidences. Uh, when something major happened in his life, he checked the hands on the clock to see where it, were, where it was. He believed that when the clock hands were at certain positions, those in the afterlife were watching over him. He also thought that the numbers 7 and 17 had special meaning. For example, World War II ended on May 7, 1945, when Germany signed an unconditional surrender, and King's own birthday was on December 17th. So those were, like, we all have, like, numbers that we recognize, but for him, 7 and 17 were big ones. Hmm. So none of this was known until 1950, uh, when after King's death, his personal papers were made public. And it turns out that much like your doctors from the Elizabethan era, he wrote or dictated a diary entry nearly every single day for 57 years, including, yeah, including all of the seances that he attended, all of the advice he sought from those at the seances, the the advice he got who visited him. So that's how we know that he had this connection to the spiritual mystic afterlife side of things. So while Canadians saw him as bland, milk toasty during his tenure, his private life would have raised a lot of questions and probably would have led to a political de- defeat had they been known. But because he was so good at keeping them so under wraps, because he had no real friends to rat him out, 
He was Canada's longest serving prime minister at 22 years and undoubtedly the weirdest. Ah, uh, yeah. <laughs> but I mean, that's I guess so, maybe a uh, good adage for locking your shit up. Yeah. When you lock it down, none of this gets out unless you journal meticulously. And then when you die, people are like, what the fuck is this? <laughs> Sorry. Exactly. <laughs> but so ends my collection of stories that will have our listeners going, oh, Canada. Oh, every five minutes. <laughs> I mean, I like, I, I think the spirituality of it is really cool. But then to just, I mean, it's good that all of his advice turned out for the best, but. Yes. And like I was reading when I was prepping the story, like spiritualism was like a big cultural movement at the time, like the Houdini of it all, the the table wrapping. So it's not that surprising that he got wrapped up in it. It's surprising that he led a nation based off of what Leonardo da Vinci would tell him. (laughs) That's where the issue is. (laughs) Yeah, I know. Exactly. Right. Like, just what? 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 So you go back now and look at some of these. So did someone tell you Hitler was okay? <laughs> you obviously didn't see like that change what in course coming. So yeah, there it is. There is our our stories for Canada Day. Uh, do you have any plans for what you're going to do on the holiday? Oh, it's one busy, busy weekend. So today is Elizabeth's birthday. She turns four. Oh. And so we're doing uh, her party at the park with a bunch of kids, like a bunch of her friends tomorrow. So that's pretty much all of tomorrow. And then Saturday here in the village I live in, they do their Canada Day uh, celebrations the day before Canada Day. Does it compete with the other communities? Makes sense. So it's smart, right? As for me, I have my Canada Day tradition of hate watching the show from the hill because it's always terrible and then getting super emo and watching the six hour Pride and Prejudice version from A&E from the 90s. I've done it every year for going on 10 years now and I enjoy the hell out of it every time. So that's how I spend my Canada Day. (laughs) Well, we usually usually send me a message. I didn't watch it last year, I don't think. It might be on in the background on Canada Day, but we usually... Was it last year we put together a better lineup than they did? Just by randomly oh, naming yeah. Canadian yeah. acts that we know of? It would have been so much easier had they just called us and said, hey, name five Canadian singers off the top of your heads, and we could have done a much better job with the lineup than they did. Yeah. Undoubtedly. Undoubtedly. It was rough. I don't even know what the lineup this year is. I don't know either, but we're due for another Sarah McLaughlin Arms of the Angels uh, jam because she does that once every like five to six years. And I think it's been a while. So we're due for that. So uh, wild prediction. If she's there this year, I earned myself a dollar. <laughs> <laughs> and then obviously our uh, to our American listeners, happy 4th of July later on in the week. The day that Britain decided to grant you independence. Congratulations. So that is our episode for this week. Get out and enjoy some Canadiana on our behalf. Uh, If you would like to know more about the show, head over to our website, which is www.rabbitholespodcast.com. While there, check out our merch tab, where you can find some of our lovely merch on our Redbubble store. Or you can check out our support tab, where you get the link to the Patreon page and come on board as a patron, and then you'll get access to the not-so-secret secret part of the website. Uh, if you want to reach out and let us know about a rabbit hole that you enjoy falling down or that you would like us to fall down on your behalf, you can always shoot us an email at 
rabbitholespodcast at gmail.com. You can find us on social. You can find us on Twitter at rabbitholespod, Facebook, rabbitholespodcast page, and Instagram at rabbitholespodcast. We'll be posting lots of Canadiana um, content this week, so it should be lots of fun. I've got lots of stuff to post up. You can also rate us, give us a review on any platform that allows you to do so, such as Apple Podcast or Facebook. Um, you can also just recommend us to family and friends. We love growing our audience. Uh, we enjoy what we do. Um, it's more of a hobby for us, but it's it's cool to know that random people are listening. Mm-hmm. And speaking of growing our audience and fun hobby times, just a reminder that the Ottawa Podcast Festival is coming up on August 24th here in Ottawa. If you want some more information about that, we're hoping to announce a lineup in the next two weeks or so. You can head over to our website, which is www.ottawapodcastfestival.com. Keep an eye on that, and if you are in the Ottawa area or plan on coming up for a vacation, please do pick up some tickets and come hang out with us and a bunch of other cool Ottawa podcasts that will be performing that night, that day, I should say. It's a day-long festival. So, before you go off and enjoy your Molson's while having some chip wagon poutine, there's just one last thing to do, and that's to remind you that if you don't know where you're going, any road will take you there. Bye, guys. Goodbye. Goodbye.